Don't give your freedom away is the title of this message. On receiving the degree of Doctor of Civil Law from Oxford University, June 19, 1941, Franklin Delano Roosevelt made this profound statement. He says, we too, born to freedom and believing in freedom, are willing to fight to maintain freedom. We will, we and all others who believe as deeply as we do, would rather die on our feet than live on our knees. Willing to fight to maintain freedom. I, I think this statement epitomizes who we are as Americans. We love freedom. We love freedom of speech. We love freedom of the press. We love freedom of religion that people can worship the, the way that they want uh, to worship. And down through the years, Americans have always coined battle cries of freedom. You remember this one. Remember the Alamo on February 23, 1836, Mexican General Santa Ana besieged Colonel William B. Travis and some 200 Texas independence fighters at a former Franciscan mission known as the Alamo. Many of you have been there, I'm sure. The Texans were outnumbered and outgunned, but they held out for 13 grueling days until March 6th when the Mexicans stormed the fort and killed nearly all of its defenders. The defeat was catastrophic. Travis, James Bowie, and famed frontiersman Davy Crockett all died but the Texans' courage under fire helped galvanize their compatriots. General Sam Houston and others used the rallying cry, Remember the Alamo, to whet their troops' appetite for vengeance. And in April 1836, the Texans routed a superior Mexican army and captured Santa Ana at the Battle of San Jacinto. Remember the Alamo lived on even after the United States annexed Texas in 1845 and was later revived by U.S. troops during the Mexican-American War. And then you remember this one, Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death. The American Revolution gave rise to dozens of rallying cries. No taxation without representation. Join or die. Don't tread on me. Actually, I saw that on a hat yesterday. But few are, had as significant an impact as liberty or death. The phrase first appeared in March 1775 in an address by Patrick Henry, which concluded with the immortal line, I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Henry's speech convinced the Second Virginia Convention to raise militias, and his words immediately became a battle cry among the colonial men, who considered them a symbol of their determination to shake off the yoke of the British rule. Many Virginia militia marched under banners emblazoned with liberty or death, and they even wrote it, had it printed on their shirts or sewn in. And even in the 1860s, several Confederate units placed it on the flags to symbolize the belief that the Civil War was the second American Revolution, which leads into the last one I'm going to mention, which is the rebel yell. Ambrose Bierce's description was this, it was the ugliest sound that any mortal ever heard, even a mortal exhausted and nerved by two days of hard fighting, without sleep, without rest, without food, and without hope. It was the notorious battle cry of the Confederate forces during the Civil War. He said this banshee scream was the Confederate calling card for most of the war. And I've probably told you this story before that my great-grandfather and Barbara, my sister's great-grandfather, and Diane Frank's great-grandfather and great-uncle Mustard Allen. Matt Toon rode a train to Louisville, marched to Perrysville. It was the first battle. And these troops that came up from the south had just finished a battle at Shiloh. So these Confederates were hardened troops. They knew, they knew battle. And most of them from Illinois were just green farm kids. And they said when that battle started that uh, the rebel yell was let out and 
the union retreated in fear because they'd never heard anything like it, and the union got their butts kicked that day, actually. And I know in the Boyd family that there, there were some issues with things in the South. They had a daughter married somebody from Tennessee, and we all remember that story. And the famous lines in their wedding, hey, you remember who won the war? But, uh, and that's why that uh, uh, Tesla's uh, father-in-law has a picture in my house, in his house, of my face with a red circle over it. So. And then the state of New Hampshire, their motto, live free or die. It's in us. I think it, it was in the roots of America. And as people came from other countries and came here and took on a new identity, and they were steeped in it. it it's, just, it's just part of who we are. When we become Christians... There are enemies that try to take that freedom away that we have in Christ, and I, I hope you understand the freedom that you have in Christ. A lot, a lot of times, uh, I don't think believers can grasp that. Paul gave a battle cry two, over two, two millennia ago, was this, don't give your freedom away. The hallmark of being a follower of Christ is freedom. Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The Bible also says, if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. The Bible also says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there are freedom. As a follower of Christ this morning, are you living free? When you get up in the morning and go to school or go to work, do you, are you in freedom? Are you, are you, or do you feel bondage or, or bound, so to speak? I know that's the point. It's... It's, it's kind of ironic sometimes that people, after they walk the walk for a while, they, they kind of lose that newness. I don't know about you, but when I first came into the kingdom, there was a, an exciting newness of that for me, that, that I had left this old past life behind and was going into something new where I was accepted and forgiven. I hadn't felt that before from any other places in, in my life or in my world, but, but nonetheless, people, after a while, they, they kind of lose that enthusiasm. I, I think it's because some folks allow people and circumstances to steal their freedom, the freedom that they have in Christ. Because not everybody will see the kingdom as you see it. Paul wrote the book of Galatians, and the thrust behind that book was was don't lose your freedom in Christ. That was the point. He said, don't let anybody steal it. Paul was mad. He, we get into this, and you can, you can almost sense the anger sometimes in his words. It was, it was given in love, but he, still, he was upset. He had risked his life, so to speak, and went to Galatia and planted this church, such as uh, uh, Ron and I did in the beginning here at Crossroads in 98. And he left and left some others in charge, and word gets back to him that a group had come in called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers were a group of people who said, you can be a Christian, but if you want to be a Christian, we have drawn up these articles, and this is what you have to do. It doesn't really matter what so much of what, 
what God said or what Paul said, so to speak. We know better, and you have to follow this. And if you get outside of these boundaries, you're not a Christian anymore. You have to follow this law to the letter. So Paul was upset, and he writes this book to the Galatians, and he was mad. It's full of strong emotion. Paul warns us in Galatians 5.1, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm in them and do not let yourselves be burdened again. He's saying stay free. Galatians 1.7, Evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the good news of Christ. He mentions in Galatians three subtle traps that will try to take our freedom away. And the next three weeks, that's what we're going to be looking at. I'm only going to look at one trap today and then... Next week and then, then the third week. Chapter 3, Paul warns us this one. Here's the first trap. Beware of becoming a perfectionist. It will rob your freedom. It will rob your joy. Thus, our big idea, don't be a perfectionist. What is a perfectionist? A perfectionist is believing or trying to please God by being perfect. Definition, thinking that I must be perfect in order to please God. Paul's words have some fire in them. Galatians 3, 1 and verse 3. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain perfection by human effort? Paul said, you guys have been calm. Somebody's pulled the wool over your eyes, so to speak. They've misled you. They're trying to sell you some swamp land in Florida. They give you the idea that if you become a Christian by grace through faith, then you live the Christian life by works. And you've got to be perfect in order for God to like you. Paul said, you have been duped. Beware of becoming a perfectionist. Accepting Christ does not make your life perfect because we do not live in a perfect world. We know that. And if you've been led to believe that once you give your heart to Christ that you enter this bubble and life will be perfect, you are extremely off base because that is non-existent. God helps us through life, but he does not put us in a perfect world, and we know why. World's full of imperfect people. Governments are ran by imperfect people, whether local or throughout the country or throughout the world. Churches are ran, are served, are led by imperfect people. The sooner we grasp that, the better off that we are. If you have put me on a pedestal or Kurt, or Steve, or Chris, or any of us, take us off. I implore you on my knees to put Jesus Christ on that pedestal. Do not put me up there. Respect me, love me, hopefully follow me, at least half the time. But you need to put Christ there. I'll let you down. I hate to say that. There'll be times that I won't do what you want me to do. There'll be times when I miss a surgery or a birthday because nobody told me. There'll be times when I do that. I'm human. I'm trying. I'm giving it my best shot. But that's, that is the way it is. And we understand that. If we lived in Pleasantville, everything would be perfect. And basketball practice would look like this. Welcome to Pleasantville. Pleasantville, you can't miss. 
Everything's perfect. We know that's not true. It, it just is. It's a bizarre movie, but that kid goes in there and it, he gets into that, and like everything's perfect. But we realize that the world's not perfect, and neither are we. And if you're a believer, and you think that you've reached per- perfection, I busted your bubble this morning. But uh, I ask you to forgive me. But you know what? We are programmed as children sometimes. You might have had a parent that was like that, and when you became a believer, you transferred the role of a controlling parent onto Father God, and that's, that's how you see it. And all of a sudden, you are serving an unpleasable God. Regardless of what you do, 24-7, you're never, you've got in your mind that you're never going to please Him. If you got C's, maybe your parents say, you should have got a B on that. Or if you got a B, then you should have got an A. And if you got an A, maybe your teachers are too easy on you. No matter what you did, you felt like you were not just doing good enough. And they said, you're not making the grade. And you live your whole life like that. You can't imagine the people that will stand by an open casket by a person that they had waited all their life for that person, that parent, to say one time, I am proud of you, and they never heard it. Waited their whole life. If that's you, don't let that happen. Don't let that happen with your kids and your grandkids and people that you love. You you need to let them know that. You need to say that, I love you. I say it all the time. Maybe it's like a broken record, but I, I can't say it enough, to be honest with you. A lot of people transfer that over to God. Paul says, that'll make you upset. It will steal your joy. You just can't be, you just can't be perfect. Some people see God that he's full of criticism. That every time you try to do something, doesn't matter what it is that he criticizes. God's not a critic, and he's not a nag. Who knows that, what that word means, nag, nagging? God doesn't do that. If he did, you know, it, I don't think any of us would be happy. But nonetheless, he doesn't do that. You know what the favorite words of a perfectionist are? I should, I must, I ought to, I have to. You never can relax because you feel like you're You've got to keep pushing and striving to be better and better. Perfectionism is based on the fear of God rather than on the love of God. And you become driven in life. You're driven. It's a constant. You, you never relax. You never let down your guard, so to speak. You're always driven. You are all called into a ministry. I want you to live and to see your life in Christ as a calling, not, not driven. Driven, you, you do it because you have to, but when you're called, you do it because you want to. There's a big difference there. And that's, that's what Paul is, is, is trying to interweave that throughout the verses in Galatians, and that's, that's the point he's trying to bring across. What is the results of perfectionism? It destroys your peace. What happens is your relationships to God become a burden that are, rather than a blessing. 
and, and you get up and you put your clothes on Sunday morning and, 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 it's, it's, and it's a burden to drag yourself here. But you do it because you think you have to. I want you to come here because you want to. When you come in wanting to be here, you've got a way better attitude about things. And that's, that's the point. The Christian life becomes frustrating rather than fulfilling. And you feel like that you can never measure up. Paul says, that's foolish. He doesn't call people names so much. He did here. You foolish Galatians. I'll never be able to measure up to God. He's perfect. I'm not. You're not. It's foolish even to try to measure up to God. So here we've got a dilemma. So how do we solve this dilemma? Well, the Word of God always gives us a solution. It's in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Paul said, this is God speaking to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weaknesses. God is saying, I know you're weak, but my power is made perfect in your weakness. I think all in all our Bibles, we ought to all circle the word grace every time you see it. If you don't get anything else, I say, get this. God loves you unconditionally. I, I know that if you've not been loved like that as a child or in life, that it's hard for you to wrap your mind around it. Regardless of what you do, He's always going to love you unconditionally. You can't do any more or any less at this exact moment to make God love you any more than He does right now. That, that is so hard for us because we're all programmed with conditions. People that we love, people that we live with. Sometimes if they don't do what we want, or we, we, we almost don't love them so much anymore. But that, that's not the way God is. He loves you on your good days. He loves you on your bad days. Anybody ever have a bad day? You just, and you try to break out of it. And you, you're stuck in it all day. And it doesn't really get better. Till you go to bed and then wake up in the morning and you're a little different. But he still loves you the same on those days. He loves you if you pray. He'll still love you if you don't pray. He loves you when you have a quiet time. He'll love you if you don't have a quiet time. But the problem is, if we don't spend time with him, we're not going to get, he's not, he can't bless us. That's the difference in all of that. He loves you when you blow it. He loves you. You're, you're, his love is not based on your behavior. It's unconditional. You can't earn it. He loves you even when you don't feel very lovey, when you feel like a bum. Anybody ever feel like a bum? Actually, there's some days I like feeling like a bum. I'm a little weird that way, you know, but nonetheless, I thought about just getting me a cup and sitting out here in front of the Sherman house on the sidewalk and begging for money. I haven't got that far yet, but if you do, stop and drop a couple quarters in, if you will. So people says forget, or Paul says forget the trap of perfection is. It'll ruin your joy. Hebrews 12.2 goes with 2 Corinthians 12.9. Jesus is the perfecter of our faith. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And Jesus is the perfecter of your faith. It's his job. Even in our weaknesses, God can use us. Even in the weaknesses in your life, he can turn them into good. So what the point is I'm trying to make Christian living is based on grace, not on guilt. If you live feeling guilty all the time, you're missing the point. You're missing the point of Christian living. Be a giver of grace. Live in grace. We all realize that 
Life is full of pressure. Whether we place it on ourselves or we allow others to put that on our plate and pile it on us, the strain of constant performance and achievement can drive a person crazy. Resting in Jesus helps ease the tension and gives us a true perspective of life's meaning. Everyone drops the ball sometimes, and trusting in God's grace for identity frees us from needless anxiety and frustration that when you do have those days when you drop the ball. It's like this clip from the uh, NFL, Odell Beckham. Let's watch. Man. Deep ball, separation. Beckham can't haul it in. It's fourth down. And that kick of the ball by Beckham's going to cost him for a delay a game penalty. That'll bring up a, a fourth down and seven instead of fourth and two. So there you go. A little frustration there. But he dropped the ball. Grace lets us know it's all right when we drop the ball. And because of grace, you don't get a delay a game or 10 or 15-yard penalty. Can you imagine, my friends and people who I love, what life would be like if we were punished every time we dropped the ball or done something wrong? Angel standing there with a board or a sword, he whacks you upside the head. I think there'd be a lot of knotheads in here this morning, don't you? I love the word grace. It contains the essence of the gospel as a drop of water can contain the image of the sun. The world thirsts for grace in ways it does not even recognize. It's a little wonder that the hymn Amazing Grace edged its way into the top ten charts 200 years after it was written. For a society that seems adrift without moorings, I know of no better place than to drop an anchor in the harbor of grace. Our challenge personally and as a church, is to live our lives in grace, God's grace, and then embrace and carry out the church's mission as a haven of grace in this world of ungrace. Author Stephen Brown noted, notes that a veterinarian can learn a lot about a dog owner he has never met by just observing the dogs. What does the world learn about God by watching his followers on earth. What do people learn by observing us in our daily habitat, our daily lives, at home, school, church, work, wherever you go? If you trace the roots of grace, it's, it's charis in the Greek, and you will find a verb that means, I rejoice, I am glad. Every time you see the word grace in the Bible, I rejoice, I am glad. One of the many things that, that I love about Crossroads is that we rejoice and we are glad. People notice that when they come. One of the biggest complaints of people who don't go to church is the ungrace that they find and they sense in followers of Christ. It's, it's almost absent. A lot of times it's finger pointing and condemnation. If people feel guilty around me, I want, them, want it to be because the Holy Spirit has some way worked grace through me that I have thrown a bucket of grace on them, then somehow that has melted their heart. It's not because I have grabbed them by the throat or 
I'm whacking them on the head with this. It's the fact that the Holy Spirit has opened up that precious door, so to speak. The counselor, David Seaman, summed up his career this way, and I quote, Many years ago, I was driven to the conclusion that the two major causes of most emotional problems among Christians are these. The failure to understand, to receive, and live out God's unconditional grace and forgiveness, and the failure to give out the unconditional love, forgiveness, and grace to other people. We read, we hear, we believe a good theology of grace, but that's not the way we live. The good news of the gospel of grace has not penetrated the level of our emotions, end of quote. We need to live to repeat grace, to reflect grace, to rethink grace, to react to grace in our everyday lives. Don't be a perfectionist. Be a person who loves others unconditionally. I think we can't do that on our own. I don't think we can love people unconditionally on our own. It has to be the power of the Holy Spirit working through us. It has to be. We need to be people who do that, who forgive easily, who give grace freely to others. It's our calling card to the world. Gordon MacDonald said, the world can do almost anything as well or even better than the church. You need not be a Christian to build houses, feed the hungry, or even heal the sick with medicine. There's only one thing the world cannot do. It cannot offer grace. MacDonald has put his finger on the church's single most important contribution. Where else in the world can one go to find grace? I say this often. We, we, we need to be a place that has grace on tap. And regardless who comes through those doors, what they smell like, what they look like, what their past is, is irrelevant. They have come in here to find grace. And whether we want them at our table or not, as they sit among us, they should sense and feel the grace of God. It's their only hope in this life for this life and the next. And who are we to stop that? Who are we to say, you don't fit here, you can't come in here? Especially in the beginning, yeah, things change as people worship and want to join the church and whatever, and there is certain criteria. But in the beginning, when they first come in, what, what, how do we react to that? What are we supposed to do? That's why I like that so much. What do you got on tap here? A lot of beer drinkers, they don't want to drink out of a beer in a, can, in a bottle or can. They want to know what's on tap. They like it that way. Somebody comes in and says, you have grace on tap here? Absolutely. Absolutely. I've heard tons of stories that are heartbreaking stories, but... Diane and I was in Canada one time at a Billy Graham School of Evangelism at Lake Louise, Alberta, and we went back into Calgary to catch our plane to come home, and there was a, a, a young woman waiting on us in this restaurant, asking why we're, where he's from, why we're there, and we told her, we was pastors, and we was up from Illinois to come to this conference, and she said, well, I've had it up to here at the church. I said, yeah, why's that? She said, well, I was backpacking in Europe, and I went by this church, and I had this burning desire to go in there to pray. And she said, I walk into the foyer and hear this priest says, ho, 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 you can't come in here with jeans on. So he grabbed her arm and let her out. She fought him off and went back in and almost accosted the guy. She says, you're not keeping me out of here to pray. <laughs> Can you imagine that? 
to somebody that come in those doors. Maybe they don't look like us. Maybe they don't smell like us. Doesn't matter. Can we come in here and pray? Can we use your altar to pray? Absolutely. It, 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 it blows me away of some of those stories, ungraced stories that I've heard. And I, I have to be careful. I'm not condoning sin. But there's got to be an entrance. We have to allow the world an entrance point that they know nothing about. Because a lot of us, it, it's hard for us to express our faith out in the world, which we should be. These people should have heard the gospel somewhere else, at work or school, somewhere but a lot of times we don't, we're silent and they come in here and we just don't like their lifestyle. But it's not the point. I agree with that. There's a lot of lifestyles I don't agree with. But my point is this, that anybody in the world should be able to come through these doors and for the very first time and find grace. That, that's, that's enough said about that, but that's, that's what I'm trying to, to point the Italian novelist Ignazio Salon wrote a story about a missionary hunted by the, or not a missionary, a revolutionary hunted by the police. In order to hide him, his comrades dressed him in the garb of a priest and sent him to a remote village in the foothill of the Alps. Word got out, and soon a long line of peasants appeared at his door, full of stories of their sins and broken lives. The priest protested and tried to turn them away to no avail. He had no recourse but to sit and listen to the stories of people starving for grace. Can you imagine how many people you all rub elbows with every day that are starving for grace and the grace that, that Christ can give? My prayers, many of you have discovered this grace, and now I hope you're living under it and dispensing it to others. Galatians 5.1 in the message says, Christ has set us free to live a free life, so take your stand. Never again let anyone put a harness of slavery on you. Christ has set us free. Let us live that way. And maybe it, may it be a calling card in our life. I want to ask you a personal question. Have you lost the joy in your Christian life? Do you still have the same fervor? Do you still feel the Holy Spirit churning or working in you as you did in your past? Have you lost the spark? Boy, I remember when I first became a believer, uh, the excitement and the joy that came along with that. And sometimes the spark gets a little lower and lower like a pilot light, and then sometimes it's completely doused at, out. We fall in a rut, which a rut is a grave with both ends kicked out. And our walk with Christ becomes a routine instead of a relationship. Sometimes we kind of get the spiritual blahs, and we have to, we have to do that over again. It's, it, it's like your first love. We who have been married a while, you are madly in love when you first get married. Or you probably wouldn't be there unless your father-in-law had a double barrel sticking you in the back, poking you with it. But... That's what, that's what brought you there. And that, that love has to be cultivated. And there are times that, as Paul said that, or not Paul, but in Genesis when they talked about becoming one flesh, is becoming one flesh, becoming intimate, having sex where your souls melt together. And boy, over the years, it, it does this. It, and I think it's the same 
with, with our relationship with Christ. We've got to cultivate that. We've got to hang out with him. You've got to tell him you love him every once in a while and let him tell you that back. That is the point. But I, I've, been down, I've done this over and over in my spiritual walk. You get hot, you get cold. You get hot, you get cold. But, boy, if you're cold this morning, you need to get hot. Or maybe you've fallen into this perfectionism. and you, You've decided you can't, you can't, you can't do what you're like a hamster on a wheel. You can't do it anymore, and you're worn out, and you're just floating along. Remember these words. Jesus said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. If you've got a heavy burden, it's not from God. Of course, always my, pilgr- my picture is Pilgrim Progress. Old Pilgrim, he's weighted down with that giant weight on his back, and he can't hardly walk. If that's you, God didn't give you that burden. You've either given it to yourself or you've allowed Satan to pile it on there. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. You're carrying stuff that God never intended you to carry. How do we spell relief in the kingdom? G-R-A-C-E. It's grace. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never even taken that first step of faith. You need to really consider that. I can't make you do that. I can't put that on you. But I, I, that's my heart cry for you is to find freedom in Christ. And, you know, Jesus said in his very first sermon, I came to set at liberty those who are captive, to be set free. And we do that through confession and repentance. Is there anything you need to be set free from today? You know what, friends? God knows so much more about us than anyone else in this world, even people that we live with. Maybe you've got tremendous worries about tomorrow or some painful memories from the past that you've never really been to share, be able to share with anybody. Maybe a harmful habit, a fear, guilt, resentment. Maybe you need to be set free from anger. You're angry all the time or loneliness. We, we have to let Christ set us free, and he will do that. Open up your heart to him in your heart and say this, Jesus, come into my life. Make yourself real to me. I commit myself to you this morning. Take all of me. Make me the person that you want me to be. Father, I love these people, and I lift them up to you. I lift myself up, actually. I pray, God, that today, as you have spoken to us through your word, that Holy Spirit, you have said something to our hearts, and I just pray right now that we, we heed whatever that might be, whatever you have laid upon us. We don't have to get out of our seats, but if we want to be prayed with or we feel good about it, just leave, bring it up here in this whole image of leaving it at this altar and getting up and leaving it there and letting Jesus have it, that's, that's okay too. Right now, Holy Spirit, as we pause before you, just help us to be honest. As you point these things out in our lives, Lord, and you keep breathing freedom into us, may we accept it and live it. Thanks again for this morning, and help us all to leave leave this place entirely free. For we ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.